You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. afternoon and it's another typical day in the pacific northwest here you're listening to the bo's nose show and i'm your host west lane county commissioner jay bozovich and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown elmira oregon and as you can see it's been a busy day running from board meeting to lunch meeting to board meeting to doing a radio show is why i'm still in a suit so um formally dressed to do radio or Facebook live video as the case may be, which just reminds me that you can listen to uh, KRBN internet news talk radio via our Facebook feed live on our KRBN internet news talk radio Facebook page. So those of you that don't want to go through blog talk and, and uh, our page there, um, there's lots of ways. I heart radio, uh, you know, uh, uh, probably missing about 10 of them, but, uh, you know, always ways to listen to the Bose Nose Show. But we come to you live here at 4 o'clock on Wednesdays so that we can have a conversation. And you can call us at any time during the show to change the subject, talk about what you want to talk about, or whatever I've proposed as subject at 646-721-9887. And just press 1, and that lets us know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887 and just press one. So all sorts of things to talk about on the Bose Nose Show. It's been a busy week since the last show. Um, Monday, I spent almost the entire day in Salem at the Association of Oregon Counties, which is always interesting because you start to hear what's going on with state issues, what the legislature might be getting up to next year what's happening in other counties. Uh, And then we spent, you know, a full day of board meeting yesterday, which included an evening public comment session. So basically board meeting from nine in the morning all the way to 7.15 or so at night, whenever that we we got done. Um, So it makes for a long day there. And then we had a board work session this morning that went for a couple hours, another executive session on top of that. Ran off and I had a lunch meeting with the uh, general manager of Lane Electric Co-op and then came back for a Homes for Good board meeting. So, wow, a lot of stuff to talk about. Brings up a lot of different subjects. And then, of course, there's been nothing in the news to talk about either, you know. (laughs) Just nothing at all. Um, And in the meantime, there's three hours of, of, uh, you know, the the Dirty Dozen um, last night on television uh that we can we can talk about too so all sorts of things to talk about here on bo's nose show but I, a couple of things i want to talk about a little bit um you know first is yesterday we kind of wrapped 
a bow around something called the Commons on MLK. And that's the housing first project that I've talked about over the last several years that the county proposed to put out there next to our um, uh, behavioral health facility out there on our campus there across from Autzen Stadium on uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard, um, where we have our Serbu Youth Campus and, and a couple other facilities. And then off to one side is our behavioral health department. And there was an empty lot next to it there that we basically uh, set aside for that purpose, sold to Homes for Good for $1. Um, so we basically contributed the land, provided some funding uh, from our um, uh, strategic initiative around housing of over a million dollars of county funds that came from the Comcast settlement. Um, combine that with a bunch of funds from four different healthcare providers here of over $2 million of their funds, provide, along with some other funding streams that Homes for Good brought in there. And all there's about 12 different funding streams that are going into the capital construction of the building. But yesterday we kind of wrapped a bow on the operational side of how we're funding this thing and provided um, basically a commitment for the county to pay for staff of $75,000 a year ongoing. And, and, you know, here this is all basically for this facility is a housing first facility that is intended to house people that have been identified as chronically homeless that are either suffering from uh, mental health problems, chronic mental health problems, and or addiction problems. And it's meant to get them in without having to get them to be not in full-blown um, addiction or mental health crisis at the same time. It's a facility that's meant to provide the 24-7 staffing and case management to deal with these people um, and to kind of stabilize them, get them treatment, and then eventually move them on. But we, we, we kind of piloted this in a smaller scale pilot that I've talked about before in our FUSE project, which stands for Frequent User System Engagement, where we identified the top 50 users of various emergency services in our community that are chronically homeless. You know, the people that end up in the emergency room, uh, getting ambulance responses, police responses, arrested and booked into our jail, all those things, the top 50 users of all those various services that taxpayers end up paying for the most part because they're you know, generally non-reimbursed services and uh, put them into housing with intensive case management. And we figured out that those folks were costing the county and, and the general public at a minimum $35,000 a year and kind of on the outside, and I still think this is, it actually is higher, somewhere as much as 60,000 a year for all the, you know, all the police, jail time, you know, emergency room, ambulance response, whatever. Um, but we could actually get them into uh, basically what was a hotel room at the time, not quite a hotel room, but just get them into a room and attach some intensive case management with it, you know, which is, mental health and addiction treatment and a case manager um, and do that for about oh, roughly 17,000 
you know, 14 to 17,000 a year. Um, and that's really, uh, you know, the 75,000 is basically for us to staff a facility that has 51 of these units. So roughly you could say we're saving approximately, no, no less than about, um, say, 20,000 a year per person times 51. And of course, it, you know, hopefully we'll be moving people through the system and getting them often into other uh, maybe less intensive facilities. Um, but even if it's only 51 people a year, that's a lot of money we're going to be saving uh, all these various systems in, in, in the county. Um, you know, on the low side, it's like about 1.7 million. On the high side, it's over 3 million a year. You know, getting 51 people off the street with intensive case management avoids somewhere between 1.7 and over $3 million a year in emergency room, jail, bed stays, uh, police call-outs, ambulance rides, you name it. You know, that's, that's a pretty, you know, $75,000 to staff that is pretty cheap investment in some ways. So it's, it's uh, kind of exciting to see us get that off and running. And, it, and we're actually going to break ground on the actual physical uh, development of the building next month. Um, so we're really, I'm really kind of excited about that, you know, because as we talk about trying to deal with the homeless situation, and we've had a lot of uh, public testimony, and um, we've talked about, you know, this whole idea of declaring a homeless emergency, um, you know, there, you know, there is an issue here in Lane County with that. In fact, um, our actual homeless point in time count has been going up the last several years. And this year we counted uh, 2,165 people that were homeless on the day that we made the count. Now, that, you know, of those, you know, there, there was a significant amount that had shelter of some kind as HUD defined shelter. Now, in this case, we're talking about HUD's definition of homeless and HUD's definition of what shelter means. And when HUD's definition of shelter does not mean um, in a car, in a Conestoga hut, or in a MASH tent, you know, in some of our other programs. They, they consider those people technically unsheltered. You know, Opportunity Village, some of the, the those places, they're not considered, the rest stops, they're not considered sheltered. Um, but we had uh, approximately of those 2,165 people, 1,633 of them were considered to be unsheltered by HUD. But of those 1,633, 411 were in some sort of alternative shelter that HUD doesn't count. And those are those dust to dawn, dawn to dawn, uh, the Opportunity Village rest stops, uh, Conestoga huts, sanctioned car camping, those things don't really, you know, that there was 411 people that were involved in those programs. So you get down to basically uh, 1,222 people that were, were completely unsheltered in that count. So, you know, it's a fairly big number, but when, when you think about if we can take 51 of those people, you know, of the most chronic cases and get them 
in and stabilized and moved into maybe other supportive housing that's maybe a little bit less intensive and keep rotating people through that, um, you can start making a pretty significant dent in that 1200. And the other thing we're looking at, and um, we had a little bit of a report back yesterday on, is our ability to maybe provide some additional housing for homeless youth, which is something I'm really concerned about because I've talked about this before in the idea of the 15th night, where if a, if a youth is homeless for more than two weeks, they're 80% more likely to be chronically homeless as an adult than the general population. I mean, it's just, it's a huge statistic. So one of the ways we can cut down that 1,222 is to house kids, you know, before that two weeks is up. <laughs> so they don't become chronically homeless as adults. Because what happens is kids on the street, they, they get exposed to drug use. They get uh, exposed to folks that will victimize them and possibly, you know, take advantage and traffic them. You know, they get abused, they get victimized, traumatized, everything that will eventually hurt them as being high-functioning adults. So the quicker you get a youth off the street, the better. And we're looking at opening up one of our detention pods in uh, our server youth center that's unused right now as a shelter. Of course, that's sort of a, you know, difficult thing to do because those pods are meant to keep people in when you start opening them as a residence, you have to have things like two means of egress. <laughs> Typically not something you provide in a, um, you know, a, a, a uh, detention style facility. I, I don't want to say it's not a prison, but still in the detention, you usually don't provide two exits to the outside. <laughs> but if it's a residence, and you're going to qualify it for residential stay of people that aren't under detention, you legally by code have to provide these two means of egress. So we're talking about having to punch two holes through, you know, cinder block and reinforced concrete uh, walls to, to provide these external um, ingress egress areas uh, instead of just maybe one hole that's there now into a um, cinder blocked up yard has a basketball hoop in it, you know? <laughs> so there, there's a big change you got to do. And of course, you know, the doors on the, on the, uh, uh, in the dormitory are, are meant to be, you know, locked from the outside instead of locked from the inside and, you know, for privacy and everything. So a lot of changes have to happen. And we figured it was going to end up costing about Five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars to convert that to residential stay for about thirty-four to thirty-six youth. But we think we can do it for a lot cheaper if we kind of maybe shoot for only about sixteen, uh, and and not try and completely convert the area all to living quarters. And maybe do that first step for this winter if we can get it done quickly enough. But you know, even so, there's only a, a you know somewhere around 100 youth that are out on the street on any one night. So an additional 16 on top of what's provided at Station 7 um, by um, Looking Glass is a pretty big dent into that population because um, when you look at the unsheltered youth, there's about 84 households that are considered uh, homeless um, that have youth in them. 
and about two thirds of those at least are sheltered at any one time. So, um, you know, you got maybe 20 households that have youth that might be unsheltered at any night. Plus there's an additional in our count about 26 unaccompanied youth that were um, homeless, considered homeless. And some of those are sheltered. So 16 beds for youth would make a pretty big difference pretty quickly in that homeless youth population, at least in our point in time count. So it's sort of exciting to be working on a couple of these things and, and a little bit more permanent solutions than just going out and opening up another rest stop or finding another big tent to do a dawn to dawn, dust to dawn sort of mash tent sort of thing. Um, you know, that doesn't really change the dial at all. The greatest thing about that, that um, comments on MLK is that's really intended to provide some permanent change in those folks that are chronically homeless. You know, to, to get them the treatment for their mental health issues, to get them um, treatment for their addiction issues, to move them into supportive housing where they can be, you know, further their treatment and, and, you know, if they can't completely live on their own, find them a more permanent situation, if they, you know, maybe even eventually getting to be back to productive citizens. And, you know, there's been stories about that. Uh, in fact, one of our regular um, speakers in our, um, uh, you know, uh, meetings was homeless at one point. Uh, and, is now actually working, um, helping homeless people. Right? So, you know, there are people that, that, that make the transition from fully blown homelessness to um, being productive members of society. Um, so, you know, that's kind of an exciting thing going, going on right now in Lane County. And, and, you know, it all kind of interrelates somewhat you know, this homeless situation, you know, and you, you hate to see things in the news like um, what happened to Elkhorn Brewery um, and the vandalism, you know, that was obviously from somebody that was, um, you know, basically a uh, person that is either dealing with mental health issues or something uh, that, you know, has vandalized several downtown businesses at night uh, over time. And this is like the the third case that she's been involved with this time, I think, uh, involving um, attempted arson is probably going to take take it a little bit more seriously, and maybe not get up back out on the street so quickly. But you know, if that you know MLK had been open, there's a possibility that person may have already been in getting treatment. So really kind of excited about, you know, the possibilities of that. Because uh, there is a, you know, you know, while I want to be compassionate and see what we can do to help the homeless, there is an issue, though, that they, they do create an impact. I mean, whether it's the, um, the Elkhorn Brewery or it's that market over on, um, uh, I think it was uh, 13th or 11th, I can't remember, um, where there, a camp set up in the sidewalk in front of it, and its business dropped off considerably because of the presence of the homeless campers. Um, you know, that and that owner of that business and the employees are impacted. So, you know, there, there's, there's a, 
another side to homelessness where there are actual people, you know, that aren't homeless that are being impacted by the homeless. So um, we always have to kind of keep that in mind. But, you know, getting something, getting a handle on it is is important. So I'm going to take a breath here and remind folks that, you know, we don't have to talk about homelessness. We can talk about anything you want to talk about here on the Bo's Nose Show. Just have to call us at 646-721-9887. Just press 1. That lets you get in on the conversation. Again, at 646-721-9887. Just press 1. That lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the conversation here on the Bo's Nose Show. So kind of interrelated with this whole homeless situation, and I kind of, you know, sort of alluded to it, is that there is a, a fairly strong amount of people that identify in their um, in the statistics that that they have an issue with addiction. Um, you know, uh, quite a few of those folks um, reported that they have a alcohol or substance abuse, uh, you know, that prevents them from stable housing. You know, of that 2,000 people, Five, over 500 identified, self-identified as that. Now, those are the ones that were willing to self-identify. My guess is that number is quite a bit higher. Um, and, you know, that's just part of the story. And uh, one of the things uh, we had, a, had have been having some conversations about is this whole issue of um, the opiate ep- epidemic and how much that's driving some of our homeless issues over time. But uh, saw some graphing though about trends in um, uh, people reporting for treatment in the state of Oregon for substance abuse, and the trend has been steadily. You know, the percentage of people getting intake into um, these various programs, the percentage that are alcohol has been steadily decreasing over the last several years. The percentage of folks that are reporting for um, opiate has been steadily increasing to where the opiates actually crossed over alcohol for the first time ever in the last year. As the percentage of the population seeking treatment, the scary one to me though, somewhat though, is the meth has been creeping up slowly behind it um, over the last several years. Um, Because, you know, as, as bad as the opiate crisis is, there are some medical treatments for addiction, medically assisted treatments where they can do replacement, various drugs that replace or block um, the receptors on, on opiates and can actually help get people off of them. Sometimes you're replacing the opiate with a, a, a drug that's maybe a little bit less destructive. You know, the one that everybody commonly uh, associates is methadone, but there's several others out there. Um, so I kind of feel like the opiates are, are on their way up and peaking and there may be a turn, a downturn in that eventually. Um, but having the meth continuing up is really scary to me because there really is no, uh, there's no methadone for meth. You have to get off meth the hard way, which is fairly managing to keep, you know, doing, you know, working the system, you know, uh, taking each day, one day at a time, um, you know, all the various ways they, they 
um, get people to try and get off of drugs, but it is insidiously hard with meth, particularly in how much it changes the brain structure uh, the longer somebody's addicted to it. So that's a little bit scary to me to see the, the rise in meth coming up behind the opiates, because I think the opiates, with our changes in prescribing that have gone on in the last several years, the, the awareness of it, um, we'll probably see that peak over a couple of years and start back down. But what's going to turn meth around? You know, what's going to, you know, stop the rise in, in meth addiction? I'm not sure where that's going to start turning around. So, um, you know, at, as we look at all that, the uh, lawsuits against the pharmaceutical industry and distributors, um, manufacturers and distributors are moving ahead uh, out in Ohio. I think the first trial is starting. Um, you know, it's interesting to see there's the, all the various local governments and state governments that have sued are actually infighting a little bit over the settlement talks. Um, some of the states, uh, including our state attorney general here in Oregon, don't like the fact that there's that the Sackler family isn't uh, getting bled enough in their mind um, and punished enough, even though the um, offer for settlement would lead to billions of dollars going into treatment um, facilities. Uh, but hopefully, and then there's another issue about, you know, we don't want to repeat what happened with the tobacco settlement where billions of dollars have gone into state government, but only a small percentage has actually gone into uh, tobacco sensation and prevention efforts. A lot of it just got sucked into government and spent uh, to make up budgets. Uh, so uh, state government, and particularly here in Oregon, I think um, a very small percentage of tobacco settlement has actually gone into um, you know, tobacco sensation, uh, you know, helping people quit or prevention education, um, which is where it was intended to. So there's a lot of a lot of discussion about how to deal with the settlement, how it should be structured. Um, you know, I, I would argue it should come down to the local government level rather than than and and uh, the states get a portion of it but not all of it because definitely the tobacco settlement didn't make it down to the local government level where we actually have the public health departments could do the education and stuff. So, but that's just my personal opinion, but it's kind of interesting, you know, uh, that was a lot of the discussion Monday up at the association of Oregon counties was around this, uh, the, the global, um, uh, opiate settlements and opiate laws, et cetera, um, going on. But, you know, there's one more little piece to this homelessness, and I'll tie a bow on it for a minute. Um, and that is one of the things we did do yesterday, uh, which is to fund some contracts. Uh, and one in particular is a, a intergovernmental agreement and contract with a consortium of people that are cooperating to put a mobile mental health crisis service out in uh, the Florence area. And it's a great little collaborative work uh, between Peace Harbor and 
Sayusla uh, Valley Fire District, who's actually going to house the staff person that's going to be the responder. Um, the city of Florence and their police department, you know, in supporting it to have law enforcement co-respond when they get called out. Um, so it's going to be a really neat thing. At least it's going to roll out in, inside the city limits of Florence fairly quickly where we've got law enforcement support. The difficulty is going to be trying to roll it out to the rest of, of unincorporated West Lane County where there isn't law enforcement support. And we'll have to try and figure that out you know, a year or so down the road here when we're ready to go to phase two and expand it. How can we get that law enforcement support to show up at the same time as the mental health worker? Because, you know, it's a, until they can assess the situation and all that, there really needs to be somebody there in case there's a need for a law enforcement response. And just to back up the mental health worker and, you know, provide and just assure the safety of the mental health worker. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the hitch and the giddy up of that is trying to expand it out into the unincorporated areas out there in Mapleton and, uh, Deadwood and, you know, up there, you know, in Hasita beach, maybe and, and other areas, uh, around Florence. Uh, so, you know, kind of leads to that whole issue of we really need to think seriously about our next step in trying to rebuild our uh, public safety system here in Lane County and rebuild our patrol. So, talked a lot about homelessness and, you know, addiction and a few other things. You know, that this show is really about you. We'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Just give us a call, 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and that lets us know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887. Just press 1. So one of the other things um, we got to yesterday, and it's sort of related to this whole issue, um, is we talked about our relocation of our parole and, probate, parole and probation office um, Right now, they're up on the second floor of what was our community corrections uh, building next to the jail, uh, fairly close to the jail. And that's kind of like, you know, their third home in the last 10 years. Uh, they used to be in the old elections building that had, you know, mold and other problems with it. It was down there at Six and Oak that got torn down. That's now going to be where Nike's going to be relocated in the Obi uh, market district thing. Uh, but they're in a situation where really it's way overcrowded, uh, doesn't meet standards for uh, way uh, you should be dealing with people uh, on parole probation. It's not really safe for the officers, not really safe for their clients, uh, hard to have um, private conversations with their with their folks uh, that are their clients. Um, so we, we are looking at moving them to a piece of property we're in the process of uh, due diligence on a purchase it, out there at Roosevelt and um, uh, Highway 99, uh, basically the northwest, northeast corner of Roosevelt and Highway 99. And what's really cool is this is sort of related to the whole issue of you know, addiction and homelessness and everything else, because a lot of those folks end up either on probation 
or coming out of prison on parole. And a lot of them, you know, need transitional housing. They need uh, treatment uh, for their, you know, various issues that got them in trouble in the first place. Or they just end up going back out there um, not having housing. So they end up back in, in the homeless population, reassociating with all the people that, that you know, were their drug friends to begin with and were, help, you know, taught them how to, you know, do whatever crime it was they were using to support their their habits or, you know, if they're, if they're somebody that had a mental issue, you know, they're back out where they're untreated, they, they get back in crisis, you know, commit some kind of offense that puts them back in contact with the criminal justice system. So having really high functioning parole and probation department really is part of that homeless prevention side and, and helping people, you know, in partnership with our folks like sponsors, it's across the street from this location we're proposing, um, really help people get back on their feet. And, and we've gotten away from, you know, what they used to, you know, in, you know, the parole officers used to be what they called tail in jail, <laughs> where they basically would follow their parolees, wait for them to violate parole and revoke parole and send them back to jail, you know, <laughs> <clears throat> which just fills jail beds and costs us lots of money because that's an expensive place to house somebody. You know, when you talk about that thirty-five dollars to $60,000 a year, one of the things we didn't have in that is how many of those people end up actually occupying a jail bed at, you know, hundreds of dollars a night on the state budget. Uh, so we really don't want to have people going back to jail or, or, or prison. Um, so we, you know, prison beds are expensive. So having a really high functioning parole and probation is great. And part of that excitement about that uh, Roosevelt site is it's got enough room to co-locate some of our service providers that work with parole and probation, uh, such as Emergence, which is a nonprofit uh, addiction uh, counseling uh, group, you know, put them right in the same building possibly. Parole officers can walk their clients over there, you know, if they know they have a, you know, kind of combine their their appointment with a parole officer with their appointment with the the, the treatment folks, just to make sure that's all happening. Um, you know, kind of one-stop shopping, <clears throat> you know, some of the other services for, you know, job training or, or housing, et cetera, being able to have some close location and really, you know, helping these folks, you know, reintegrate, adjust, and, and not reoffend because it costs us a lot when they reoffend. Uh, so, you know, Again, this you know kind of ties into some of the other issues, but I was, it was kind of exciting to look at that, talk about that, but at least it's something that really was also a dominant of the conversations up there in Salem on Monday with the the uh, Association of Oregon Counties, which is community corrections funding, and parole and probation is considered community corrections. It's it's where people are actually, um, you know serving out their sentence or, or um, you know, uh, punishment in the community rather than in the prison. 
and it's something that's funded by the state and that model the state funding it because it used to be a purely state function and having the counties provide the service but the state funded started back about 25 years ago with something called senate bill 1145 and in that the counties took on this function there was a promise made by the legislature that they would keep up the funding and if they didn't keep it up above a certain level including adjustments for inflation they would it would trigger the ability for counties to opt out and turn their service back over to the state and the state would have to provide parole and probation services and community corrections in the county um, they avoided barely um, triggering the opt-out you know there's some arguments that they may have actually hit the trigger point but they really funded it as low as possible in this last legislature and um, there's something that part of that Senate Bill 1145 called for was once every six years they're supposed to do this exhaustive study of what does it actually cost to have somebody on parole and probation and supervise them on a daily basis <clears throat> and that was supposed to adjust the funding formula well they didn't make it mandatory to adjust it to that study but the current reimbursement from the state that they that this the legislature funded is a little over eleven dollars a day per person on supervision the time study that was done this last year which was is done every six years shows that we've fallen so far behind that the actual cost now is over fourteen dollars per day per person and made a fifty million dollar difference in what should have been funded across the state but this they they did not even they completely ignored the time study and just funded same level of service from the last biennium so it wouldn't trigger the opt-out but because of that we're holding four positions open in our parole and probation services we had to reduce funding to several um, other agencies for a total basic you know we had to basically cut back about 1.7 million dollars here in lane county you know other larger counties like multnomah county had to cut well over five million dollars out of their programs yet you know this is the service you know that actually helps keep people clean and sober in some ways you know, this is their their accountability system now we get back to remember that declaration we made a few weeks back you know uh, uh, last week i talked about on addiction one of the reasons i had a problem with it was Kate Brown had made a similar declaration, yet she really hasn't done anything or to move the needle. She actually proposed an even lower level of funding to community corrections than what the legislature passed. You know, so how can something be an emergency when one of the systems that supports folks staying clean and sober and getting treatment coming out of prison or prevent or before they go into prison in lieu of prison on probation um, you know how could you short that funding if it's a crisis 
So kind of one of those scratch your head kind of moments. Uh, but which kind of, you know, speaking of Kate Brown, you know, the, the, the recall wasn't successful. I think when that started coming around, didn't I say something on the show that I thought that it was a bad idea because I didn't think they could get enough signatures in the time period. And all that was going to do was allow Kate Brown to go out, hold a press conference and say she beat the recall. Well, I told you so <laughs> for those folks that did it. But it kind of, you know, it, it's sort of um, just a little bit odd because um, it, it leads on to my next topic somewhat, which is going to be a complete change, which is I want to get to this whole thing about the uh, aerial spray and community rights initiatives, placing them on the ballot, the legalities around that. One of the things I consistently heard and that always bothered me was the claim by the folks that support this aerial spray ban and the community rights um, uh, uh, bill of rights or whatever they want to call it. Um, they kept saying they had 30,000 people, you know, wanted them to be on the ballot. Well, it was two separate initiatives that they got 15,000 signatures each that they circulated at the same time. So they technically might have gotten maybe, you know, maybe some people only signed one and not the other. But for the most part, most of the people signed both. So the kind of claim that 30,000 people supported it is sort of like taking the, the two different recall petition efforts against Governor Kate Brown, which I saw being circulated at the same time, both petitions were out for, for signature at the same time. So people were signing both and claiming that, you know, although they didn't make the 293,000 or whatever signatures they needed to successfully get the recall, both of them got about 200,000. So that means 400,000 people wanted to recall Kate Brown. That's the kind of math some of those folks are using to try and claim that there's this you know, groundswell, democratic, you know, uh, grassroots movement to place these things on the ballot when they claim 30,000 people supported it. No, 15,000, maybe a few more unduplicated signatures between the two petitions, just like only 200,000 people probably wanted to recall Kate Brown enough to sign those petitions during that time period. So sort of a really tangential relationship between the Cape Brown recall and the uh, aerial spray and community rights um, petitions uh, and supporters, proponents. Uh, so I, I won't try and say 400 people, 400,000 people want to recall Cape Brown if they'll stop saying 30,000 people wanted to place those initiatives on the ballot. Um, don't double count signatures on two separate petitions. Unless you can come up and show me that you deduplicated the list and you have 30,000. Um, just like I, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't expect people to believe that people didn't sign both versions of the Kate Brown recall that were motivated enough to sign them. So, and speaking of governors, you know, last night while we were listening to all this public comment about whether we should or should not uh, put the uh, uh, initiatives back on the ballot as um, 
ordinances and refer them, you know, at, by action of the board versus the uh, supporters going back out and having to collect signatures again, because what they tried to do was do it as a charter amendment and they weren't, they were found to be uh, illegal charter amendments because they included more than one uh, issue for a vote. Um, on, you know, they, they put more than several issues in a single vote that should have been separated into separate votes. Um, but if they do it as an ordinance, that that standard doesn't apply, and they could have probably gotten it by, but they got to go back out and collect their signatures again. They're trying to shortcut that and asking the board to put it on the ballot. But while we were listening to comment last night, we were lucky enough to have Oregon's kid governor uh, at our um, uh, meeting last night and, and was there to listen to public comment, uh, Erica Baldwin, uh, and she's actually local from here in the Eugene community. And it was kind of nice to have a 12-year-old um, there with us on the dais because it kind of kept some of the public testimony more polite than it usually is, and particularly the crowd reactions and all that. Um, so it was kind of made it a more pleasant evening because I think people are on better behavior. <laughs> so it was great having the kid governor there. Um, speaking of governors, but it gets to this whole issue of placing something on the ballot. Now, the initiatives that they want to place on the ballot around aerial spray and community rights generally require uh, a violation. They want to a local regulation of things that have been specifically preempted under state law, either under the, the, the um, Pesticide Act, I think, and it, or the Forest and uh, Practices Act. Um, there's a couple, um, couple acts that are state law that have specific, and it's not just a prohibition, um, it's a prohibition against passing any laws around it. So the issue for us is if we, if we take a positive action to place that something that we know is against state law on the ballot, are we liable for lawsuit in that case? You know, is it, can the county be sued and can we personally be held liable? And our uh, legal counsel, you know, our county counsel that is appointed by the board has told us, yes, I that my opinion is that you will be making yourself liable because you understand that there is this, you know, you've been made aware uh, through public comment, through um, letters from other attorneys, et cetera, that there is this law in the state of Oregon that says you are preempted from regulating and passing laws that regulate pesticides. And you're also preempted from, you know, regulating uh, forest practices, which the community rights uh, initiative does. Uh, so it's really, you know, pretty clear cut. We understand there's this prohibition. And putting something on the ballot will expend public money. And there's a piece of statute that basically says if we knowingly um, misuse fund, public money, which you know, running election on a ballot measure that violates state law, 
could be considered a misuse. And we do that, you know, against advice of counsel and all that stuff. You know, we could just end up personally liable. And the clear, you know, the clear cut case for that is the dumb die lawsuit. You know, there had never been a case where uh, a, a county commissioner or a local official had been held liable for violating the public meetings law personally. And in particular for serial violation of the public meetings law, holding a serial meeting. But because county council had advised several commissioners against serial meetings, and a couple of those commissioners that knew about that still went about a serial deliberation to come to a pre, you know, pre-decided outcome for a budget vote. They were found to have willfully violated and were held personally liable by the judge in that case. You know, I don't know about you, when my attorney tells me that I'm, you know, if I move this onto the ballot, I'm making myself personally liable. I listen to my attorney. I don't listen to the attorney for the community rights folks or the anti-aerial spray folks because I have no affirmative defense. The one defense, one of the defenses you have as an elected official against that, you know, misuse of public funds is. I voted on this particular legislation, this legislative act, on advice of my attorney that it was legal. That's an affirmative defense. The fact that my attorney says, I, I don't think that's going to be legal if you do that, has completely taken away my ability to, to use that as an affirmative defense. And I can't say, well, the lawyer for that other group over there, who's not my lawyer and I'm not his client, said that there's this Supreme Court case that says you're immune, um, that's not a, an affirmative defense. And in fact, the Supreme Court case he was citing was it was in 1998, and the dumb dive case was heard and ruled on in 2010. Actually, I think the actual ruling might have come out in January 11, but I, December of 10 or January of 11. So, you know, 10 years, 12 years later, and commissioners were found personally liable for violating this portion of ORS that says you can't misuse funds, you know, public funds. And, that, and your, the personal liability test is based on whether you did it willfully with knowledge and, and acted in a, in a way that's again, you know, because in some ways, it would just be county liability if if you were acting within the law in some ways. Uh, so it's just, you know, we spent this morning talking about this. We heard from attorneys attorneys that weren't our our attorney. We heard from a, an attorney that rep, represents the community rights folks. We heard from uh, attorneys that were opposing them. You know, there were four attorneys that spoke this morning. Only one of those was my attorney as a county commissioner that works for the county, and I can actually use his advice as an affirmative defense, and that's our county council. Didn't matter what the two attorneys that, you know, are basically opposed to these these measures are or the opponent attorney that, that um, is supporting it 
told us about liability and all that, the only one I can count on for affirmative defense is that county council. So we spent two hours talking about that this morning. We wasted well over $5,000 in our internal attorney time, which if you were having to pay for that on the market would have probably been closer to fifteen dollars to $20,000 worth of attorney time. Basically, just sit there, listen to all this for a couple hours, and and know, you know, basically know that we're we're not going to place it on the ballot. You know, I didn't hear one commissioner say, you know what, I'm willing to buck my my county council, and I want us to come back later and place these on the ballot. So, kind of along with wasting eight hundred to a couple thousand dollars on resolutions and declarations. This morning was a waste of of um, county resource because I could have told you what the outcome was going to be two months ago when they scheduled this. And in fact, in the interim, the Lincoln County decision um, came out on the Lincoln County initiatives that were were done the correct way. Folks collected signatures and placed them on the ballot through the initiative process as ordinances where it, you know, separate vote didn't matter and there was no commissioner doing something against state law you know one thing is citizens have a right to put something on the ballot that violates state law they don't have a right though for it actually to become effective law because that's what the the judge ruled on was basically said this is this is not legal you can't do this under state law it's preempted you know, I don't care if it's, you know, it basically voided the whole thing. So, um, yeah, that, you know, in between, you know, that judge's decision came out basically, you know, smacked down the legality of, of the, that, those initiatives. But those initiative folks have the right at any time to go out and do what they did in Lincoln County, go collect the signatures, place them on the ballot that way, nothing can stop them. They just have to go through the effort. What they're asking us to do is to shortcut that process and at the same time, make the county and the commissioners liable in lawsuits. Now, one of the things I didn't mention is in the Dumdi lawsuit, the two commissioners that were found personally liable ended up settling or $20,000 a piece in fine, it's basically to make up some of the cost of the, um, the plaintiff. The, the rest of the plaintiff's attorney fees were paid by the county, i.e. your taxes. It amounted to hundreds of thousands of dollars. On top of that, we also paid for a lot of outside counsel because of conflicting interests of the internal County Council was involved in the case in some ways. So we had to have outside counsel represent the commissioners that were involved in this in the dumb die suit. So the whole thing ended up costing the taxpayers pretty close to three quarters of a million dollars. So for me, it's not just about worrying about the liability, my personal liability, but the liability of the taxpayers. And the dumb die suit would, was chump change compared to what I think people would be suing for 
if we place this on the ballot and people have to go through the expense of running um, yes and no campaigns at millions of dollars and the possible damages, because um, uh, there's a lot more private forest land in Lane County than there, um, there is in Lincoln County. Um, so the potential damages are much higher for uh, temporarily putting in place a law that might prevent um, a, a forest practice. Uh, you know, three quarters of a million dollars would probably seem cheap in comparison to what the county might be paying in the long run. So, well, I've just about run out the clock here on the Bose Nose Show. I just wanted to mention one, what were they thinking? So I didn't warn Robin that I was going to do this. Kind of mentioned it right before we came on the air. So I mentioned I had lunch today with um, the general manager for Lane Electric Co-op. I found out something interesting today. Apparently, Congress made some tweaks to tax laws and a few other things. And one of the things that's happening now is uh, FEMA reimbursements for the disaster declarations of that snowstorm this last winter are going to be considered income for the electric co-ops. Now, mind you, for Lane Electric, that was a lot of money because they get to reimburse up to 75% of the damage. Now, you think Douglas Electric Co-op down there in Douglas County, very similar. If the amount of revenue or income coming into a, a, a electric cooperative is more than 15% of their total income from their co-op members, it loses their tax-exempt status. So if... Lane Electric and Douglas Electric Co-op and other co-ops around here accept the FEMA money and it goes beyond 15% of their of their their income slash revenue now that's considered income, they could end up having to pay tax on that disaster relief money because it's considered income. What were they thinking in Congress? And why can't they get together and fix this? Oh yeah, that's right. They're busy doing other things, some kind of uh, proceeding that involves the president or something like that and arguing with each other. Fix it, Congress. We need to rebuild our electric infrastructure here. And we don't need to have, you know, the poor, you know, co-op members for Lane Electric Co-op, Douglas Electric Co-op, Flatchley Lane Electric Co-op suddenly have their rates spiked to pay taxes back to the government on disaster relief money. What were they thinking? Fix it. Unintended consequences. How many times do I talk about unintended consequences? All right. Well, we're getting about it on the Bose Nose Show. Thank you for listening today. I kind of ate up the time myself pretty pretty quick there. You can tell I kind of got a few things I'm a little passionate about this week. Told you it was a busy week. Well, we'll be back next week on the Bo's No Show, live from beautiful downtown Elmira at 4 p.m. Pacific. I'm your host, Jay Bozovich. Thank you for listening. Have a great week.